Come on. <laughs> All right, welcome everyone to Lesson 22. Everyone here and everyone on live stream, Lesson 22 of 28 in Master Plan for Life, and that's page 211. We'll be on page 211, and I'll remind you as to where this lesson fits in. But we only have, we have these uh, seven lessons left counting tonight, seven. But uh, we only have five weeks counting tonight. So, so I know. And it's because in January, there, we, the entire month of January, you may remember, we didn't meet. And we were supposed to start back up in January. But there were so many people sick, all of that, that we took off uh, in January. And then there was another snow day after that. So we lost just a bunch of days. So we only have the five sessions and we have seven lessons. So what it means is that for these 28 lessons, the last uh, four will be done in two weeks, the last two weeks. So lessons 25 and 26 will be the second to the last week, and lessons 27 and 28 will do on the, on the last week. The good news is both of those, both sets of those, those pairs are related. The themes are related to each other. Uh, so the very last two are about the end times. So we can, we can do those and it won't be like mixing apples and oranges or anything. It'll be, they'll, they'll be on the same theme. But we have to do that then. So only five weeks left counting tonight and we'll get through the seven final lessons. And this one is lesson 22 and the entire second part of Master Plan for Life is seeking to answer the question, why am I here? And in order to answer that question, you have to know what God has given the church to do because we are here to be part of God's church and, what, and to be a part of what God's church is carrying out in the Lord's mission. And that's why each of these lessons in the second part of Master Plan for Life all has to do with the church. Upper right-hand corner, you see it says the objectives of the church. So we had three lessons on the purpose of the church to start out this uh, second part of Master Plan for Life. And then beginning with lesson 20, we transition to the objectives of of the church, and then we will look at the future of the church in the final, final two lessons. Now, what are those uh, objectives? They are uh, evangelism, edification, and expansion, those three things. Evangelism, edification, and expansion. And each of those three objectives, evangelism, edification, expansion, e each biblically has different ways that those objectives are accomplished, carried out. The first of those, evangelism, is what we've seen in the last two lessons, evangelism. And we saw that that objective of evangelism is carried out two ways, through personal witness, but also through corporate mission. And that's what the last two lessons have been about. A couple of uh, sessions ago, it was personal witness, our own individual evangelism to those that God brings into our circle of influence. And then corporate mission, what it is that we collectively carry out together to move the Lord's work forward uh, through, His, through His church. So we've completed now our look at the first of those three objectives, evangelism. Now, over the next few weeks, we want to look at the other two, edification and expansion. Each of those also has ways that they're carried out. And so now we're starting tonight, edification, and there are three ways that it's carried out. So that means we've got the next three lessons tonight and the next two weeks are going to be on the three ways that we achieve the objective of edification. And then after that, the last of the three objectives, expansion, 
There are two ways that that's carried out. We got a lesson on each. We'll see those on the same night together, lessons 26 and 25 and 26. And then we'll see the church in the future, lessons 27 and 28. Okay? So that's where we've been. That's where we're going over these last five weeks together. Top of page 211 then. Back in lesson 19, we learned that one of the three objectives of the local church is spiritual growth, edification of its members. Now, I remind you that word edification, that's a churchy kind of word. You know, you don't use the word edification outside a church probably very, mu very much, but uh, it means to build up. An edifice is a, is a building. So it means to construct, to build up. So edification is building up or growing. And that's why it can be used as a synonym for spiritual growth. So one of the three objectives, top of page 211, is spiritual growth, otherwise known as edification of its members. The growing, maturing Christian is involved, and here are the three ways now that this edification is accomplished. Edification, worship, fellowship. So we've got a lesson on each one of those. Tonight, it's going to be on education. Next week, it'll be on worship. The week after that, on fellowship, and then we'll move to the third of the three objectives, expansion. And as I said, there are two lessons on, on that. Middle of that paragraph, the first of these is the foundation of spiritual growth, while the other two are expressions. So think about that for a minute. The first of these three, education, worship, and fellowship, is the foundation. And then the other two are expressions. So what it's saying is what we're going to talk about tonight in education is the groundwork upon which our worship and our fellowship is to be built. We understand how to worship. We understand how to fellowship and with whom to fellowship because we've been taught. That's what education is. So education truly is foundational. If you're going to do worship aright, if you're going to do fellowship rightly, then you must first have been taught about both of those. And that's why we say this one really is foundational and the other two, then, are expressions of spiritual growth. Education is the subject of this lesson. Worship and fellowship will be developed in the lessons that follow. That next paragraph, the fact that education is the foundation of spiritual growth is seen in what the Apostle Paul said that the teaching ministry of the pastor is to be. It's to be here, you see, to equip God's people, Christ's people, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's that idea of edified. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the idea is that those of us who are in the teaching ministry of the church are to teach people for this end, to, to be equipped to carry out God's work and in order to carry out God's work among God's people so that we all contribute to the overall growth of one another, that the body of Christ, all of us, are built up, edified, until we all reach maturity. We all approach conformity to the image of, of Christ. This lesson is going to examine, then, the following aspects of education, its nature, its objectives, its means, and its pupils. And as we go along, if anybody has a question, don't hesitate. But Apparently, I do such a great job <laughs> because, like, nobody ever has any questions. So it's all right, fine. All right. The nature of education in the local church, first of all. 
The education ministry of the church is the task of passing along both the content and the practice of biblical doctrine to successive generations of disciples. The education ministry of the church is the task of passing along both the content and practice of biblical doctrine to successive generations. I mean, that is a mouthful. Just, as you just read through that and you think about the import of that, that is really heady, isn't it? That, that the church is to pass along both the content and the practice of truth to successive generations of disciples. Wow. If you take that seriously, then, you, you're, you're careful about what it is you say. You're careful about what you teach. You're careful about how you conduct yourself because we're talking about practice here too, content and practice. So for what it's worth, I'm aware of that like all the time. I'm thinking about what are people catching? What are people getting out of what we're teaching on the one hand, but what they're being taught on the other hand by the voices that get them a lot more than I do. I mean, you, I get to talk to the people in this church for 45 minutes, pretty much. And then for those who will hang around for a second hour, I get another 45 minutes. You know, and then on Wednesday night, I'll teach class, but that'll be what, whoever's taking that particular class. So the vast majority of people in the church that I shepherd, I get that brief amount of time with. And all week, they have other people talking to them. And they have other people talking to them culturally and politically and spiritually, religiously. And I'm aware of that all the time, that, that I'm wanting them to carry, and I want their kids to carry successive generations of disciples. What it is we're teaching, as opposed to the other stuff they're getting, but they get way more time than we do. So the guy on the radio or on TV gets more time than I do if people watch that stuff. So what do you do? I mean, think about what would you do? What I got to do is make wisecracks every now and then about the bozos on TV and basically say, don't do that. And you've heard me do it, right? But there's a reason that I do that. Because I don't want you spending all week watching some guy teaching false doctrine, and then I've got only this 45 minutes to try to unravel it. So it is a, it is a, it's a big thing that you're not only trying to teach positively what people need to hear, but you're also having to try to help people guard against negatively what they shouldn't hear. So this educational task for the church is, is monumental. It's big. It's foundational. So, first of all, education in the local church is to be the first priority, since the other objectives of the church, evangelism and expansion, are dependent on spiritual growth, the spiritual growth of believers, and education is the foundation of that spiritual growth, then you've got to conclude education has got to be the first priority of the church. So, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to one of his other preacher boys, Titus, like Timothy, who is pastoring on the island of Crete. And if you read the letter that he wrote to Titus, he says that, I left you on Crete to set things in order and appoint elders. And, but then he's telling Titus, this is the way you need to conduct yourselves and yourself, and this is the way the church ought to operate. And one of the things he tells him in chapter 2 is, 
you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. In Acts chapter 2, the very first church in existence in the entire universe in Jerusalem that started in Acts chapter 2 was commended because, here's the first thing it says about them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. But notice what's first there. It's to the apostles' teaching. So education in the local church is the first priority. And that education needs to be Bible-centered. And Bible-centered education has some requirements to it. The first one is that it involves discipline. There's a discipline to being educated in the Bible. Yes, there's a, a discipline to educating people in the Bible, but there's a discipline on the part of the pupil to be educated in the Bible. You've got to have people who want the content of the Bible. And if you don't have that, then you're, going to, you're not going to have people who will sit for the 45 minutes. I mean, think about the attention spans that we have today. We have the attention spans, most of us, the attention span of a gnat. Okay. I mean, to have sustained reflection, to think about important things for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Are you kidding? We're programmed. We're programmed by television. You watch a half-hour situation comedy, and you, they go eight-minute segments. Eight minutes, and there's a commercial. Another eight minutes, and there's a commercial. So I can, I can have everybody's attention for the first eight minutes. And then after that eight minutes, many people who don't, haven't disciplined their minds, they check out, like, where's the commercial, man? You know, they're, just, they're not consciously thinking that, but their minds are just sort of drifting now. All right, what? And then, okay, maybe, maybe they come back, come to, and they come back. And then you go another eight minutes, and then they're, right? And this goes on for 40, 45 minutes. What is that person going to walk out with? And remember, I only got that 45 minutes. And in that 45 minutes, their minds are drifting. They're all over the place. So it's, there's a discipline involved, not just in the giving of the content, but in the receiving of the content. People attend churches for many reasons. Some desire to be entertained. So this is why. This is why, then, pastors succumb to entertaining. Because people do not want to sit around for many people. And so if you want a lot of people, most people don't want that. So if you want a really big church, that's your objective, then you got the wrong objective, number one. But you're also going to resort to entertaining. People want to be entertained. Others look for a good feeling. Still others attend because it's expected. But none of these are good reasons. One of the reasons to attend the local church is to be taught to correctly handle the Word of God. Here's the Apostle Paul again writing to his protege Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He says, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. So what does one approved look like? A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the Word of Truth. So this is someone who doesn't need to be ashamed of their work ethic. They've got a work ethic. They work hard at it. And having worked hard at it, they are working hard at correctly handling the Word of God, the Word of Truth. 
So, Timothy, you've got to be disciplined in order to deliver. And then, as I say, in order for it to be received, you've got to have discipline, especially in our day and age, with all the gadgets that keep our attention and pop and dazzle and all of that. And so there is always pressure then for those presenting to dance and sing, to entertain. One of the reasons, just as an aside, one of the reasons that during sermons, like, I never move. Not that there's anything sinful about moving, but I never move, as you, I'm sure, have noticed. So I just stay where I am. And because I have zero desire to have any more attention than we already have put on me. Uh, So I'll just stay where I am. And I'll just give you what I prepared. And I'll do my job and you do yours, which is listen. Okay? And, and, I'm, and I'm resisting that temptation to try to become any sort of an entertainer at all. Please understand, I'm not saying that those who do move from side to side are entertainers. They're not uh, necessarily. But there is that temptation. Okay? So this command that Paul gave to Timothy, we say here, indicates that a biblical education requires work. It does not just happen. And an unwillingness to do the hard work necessary to learn the Word of God will result in stunted spiritual growth. It reveals an attitude actually of disobedience. And both of these problems will adversely affect the church as a whole. If you have people, and every church does have people like this, who don't want to do the work. If you have more people who don't want to do the work than do, then you're going to have a church that's saturated with, in effect, disobedient and, as a result of that, uh, spiritually immature people. So you want to create a a discipline, a work ethic within the the folks in your church that says this is good, but we all need to work at it together. And when you're preaching and teaching, one of the things you're doing is modeling how that work happens. So one of the advantages of going through Uh, passages of the Bible rather than strictly topics in the Bible all the time is that when you take a passage you now have to hopefully try to show how that passage fits into the overall context and as you do that then you're educating people not only on the content of that passage but also you're educating them on the process of getting the meaning of that passage you have to put it in its context. And so people are seeing that happen. And over time, you hope, you're, you hope that that's going to catch on. And then when they hear somebody teach and they're not doing that, they go, wait a minute, that person is not putting this in context. And that's a, that's a good discernment faculty that you want people to, to pick up. So it requires work. It doesn't just happen and... If you don't have the majority of your people in the church who are engaging in that discipline, then you're going to have an overall immature church. So it involves discipline. Secondly, it is comprehensive. A local church ministry that only focuses on selected teachings of the Bible and ignores other teachings cannot claim to be, in fact, Bible-centered. When Paul spent three years with the church at Ephesus uh, in the book of Acts, And as he's leaving now, after those three years, he's leaving the city of Ephesus, here's what he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 
So Paul's desire was that they understand the entire scope of what it is that God has given us in His Word about Himself, about ourselves, about others, about God's plan for His world. You want that panorama of God's truth to be imparted to, to people. You, you want it to be comprehensive, not just focused on, focused on selected teachings. Now, why would any church, any pastor focus on selected teachings, do you think? Well, one is that you know, some denominations are actually founded on selected teachings. <laughs> I mean, the reason denomination exists is because they're big on a particular section of the Bible. Our Pentecostal friends. What are our Pentecostal friends? I grew up Pentecostal, you guys remember. But what are they? What, what sections of Scripture are they big on? Right? They're big on Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and their particular wrong interpretation of that. <laughs> and then 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 on, on the practice of tongues, speaking in tongues. So they've got these particular things. And they believe these particular things are central. And they're so central that they started a whole denomination. So it will be no, should be of no surprise to you when you go to a Pentecostal church that they're going to emphasize, emphasize those things. So one is the, the particular denomination may itself have formed because of an emphasis on particular portions of the Bible to the exclusion of other portions. <laughs> or it may be that the pastor, whoever the teachers are in the church, they have a particular hobby horse that they think is most important. And you don't want either of those. You don't want a church denomination, a church organization that exists as an organization because it's committed to just particular sections of the Bible. And you don't want teachers who have hobby horses about particular parts of the Bible. So that then you can, this is what I do, I select a book of the Bible from the Old Testament and we're going to go through that. I mean, this is how brilliant my system is. Book of the Bible from the Old Testament. No, we're done with that. We'll do one from the New Testament. When we're done with that, we'll go back to the Old Testament. And by the time you've been here for several years, you get a flavor of what's happening in the interplay between the, the Testaments. And that's my brilliant system, okay? But I'm not trying to avoid anything at all. I'm trying to give you an overall view. And as we're going to see in a little bit here, that even if we do that, and even if you are here for 30 years, and I've had a little over 20 years now, at this. But if God gave me another 30 years, which ain't happening, I'm pretty sure. But if I had another 30 years and we were together another 30 years, you wouldn't get enough out of me in our 45 minutes a week to sustain you anyway. So one of the reasons that there are these selected teachings is the organization is based on selected teachings. The pastor has his own hobby horses, neither of which is a good thing. Number three, if you're going to have Bible-centered education, it needs to be theological in nature. Education in the local church is not the memorization of verses and facts from the Bible. It's intended to present a system of thought that is a cohesive unit. Those two sentences are perhaps two of the most beautiful sentences in all of Master Plan for Life. They're, they're really important. It's not just the memorization of verses and facts. It is a system of thought that is a cohesive unit. And that's what theology is. Theology is the system of thought revealed by God in His Word. 
And it's a system of thought. It fits together. And the reason you can know it fits together is because that's the nature of God. God is not scrambled. God is not a little bit over here and a little bit over there. And, they, and these, this truth doesn't fit with that truth. Our ordered God, our logical God, our rational God, has presented a rational, logical, ordered system of truth in Scripture. That's what we mean by it being theological in nature. And so we want people, yes, to know the, the characters, we want people to know the stories, but more important than that, we want them to know how the stories and the characters fit together in the overall narrative of what God's doing. That's why when you take how to get the most out of your Bible, and some of you have done that, right? Some of you have taken how to get the most? So, just you. <coughs> okay. Well, in the fall, we do our second core class. This is the one. The other one is how to get the most out of your Bible. Do you hear that testimony? Unsolicited. <laughs> That's a great course, she said. But one of the things I think that makes it helpful is that we do what I'm talking about. As we go through the sweep, we go through the narrative of God's plan for His world. And then how the characters and the events fit into something larger. So they're not just, you know, Samuel's over here doing what Samuel's doing, and Samson's doing what Samson's doing, and then Paul comes on the scene and does whatever Paul is doing. And you've got all these names, and you've got all these events, and the day of Pentecost, and who can keep it all straight? But no, we try to then put all that together and say, here's how it started, here's how it ends, and here's what's happening in, in between. And I spend most of the time, actually, in that class doing that. Survey of the Bible, survey of the whole message of the Bible. And we can do that because it is theological in nature. There is a coher coherence to it, a cohesiveness. Middle of that paragraph. Though the knowledge of facts is valuable, a Bible-centered education is not intended to produce Bible trivia buffs. <laughs> you know, we are not trying to produce people who can answer, you know... In fact, uh, wasn't there a Bible trivial pursuit? Okay. There was the, the game Trivial Pursuit, right? And then there was a Bible version of Trivial Pursuit, which, you know, can be fun and all of that. But we're not trying to create Bible trivia, Trivial Pursuit champs. When I was a kid, that's kind of what we were doing. Now, I benefited, I really did benefit from Sunday school and memorizing verses. I had some Sunday school teachers that just, at my Pentecostal church, just drilled memory, memorizing verses. And then I went to a Christian junior high and high school. We, we had to memorize whole book. I had to memorize the entire book of James. Okay? And so and then you had to write it out. That was one of your, your tests. But I benefited greatly from all of that memorization. And we went through all the characters. And this one teacher I had in my church, I remember he was big on all this trivia, and he had us answer questions like, which verse in the Old Testament contains every letter in the alphabet except J? Yeah. <laughs> now, who cares? <laughs> and that's every letter in the English alphabet, by the way. And of course, the Bible wasn't written in English to begin with anyhow, so really, who cares about any of that? But, you know, it just kind of forced you to be in the Bible. But if that's as far as you go, and you've just got these Bible trivia buffs, and you don't see how it all fits together, and certainly don't see how it fits together and then applies to your life, then we've got an issue. What it's intended to do is produce believers who understand God and His plan for them. So education in the local church uh, requires discipline. It is, uh, it, it's Bible-centered. It's its first priority for the church, 
And then C, education in the local church is relevant. Relevant. Much current literature implies that the systematic teaching of the doctrines of the Bible is irrelevant. That is, it's impractical. See, this is why you go to a church and the pastor never goes through a book of the Bible. Because he's become convinced it's irrelevant. What's relevant is 10 steps to a better marriage. Five ways to get a handle on your anger. Ah, now we're talking practical here. And so then the pastor puts together the sermon. It's not from a passage of the Bible. It's him pulling. And you'll, you'll get, you'll get a, a key, a clue, that somebody is doing that kind of thing on a regular basis. When almost all their series have some number with them. You know, Ten keys, 12 steps, five ways. <laughs> you got, and, and then here they are. And then you take that home and you plug it in. Well, where is God in all that? Where does the story of God and God's meta-narrative for His world fit into to all of that? And so much current literature implies that to teach that way is impractical, it's irrelevant. But the Apostle Paul believed the teaching of doctrine was indeed relevant and practical. Notice this. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now notice this next word, and is, you guys see it there? And is useful. All Scripture comes from God, is God-breathed, and is of use. It's useful. What's it useful for? Doctrine, that is teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Those four things cover a lot of territory. The Bible, and thus the teaching of the Bible, is useful, and it's useful for these four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, why? Why did God give us a Bible that has the content that it has, such that it is of use, in producing teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Why did he do that? Glad you asked. It says in the middle of that passage. Here's why. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. <coughs> Paul is saying there that this is eminently practical. That this is what helps you and me become equipped become able to perform every good work that God assigns to us. But it comes through the Word of God, which is useful for these things and produces people who are equipped in that way. The Bible is capable of equipping any believer to accomplish everything that God would require of them. All right, so that is the nature of education in the local church. Now, top of page 213, the objective of education. The teaching of the Word of God is designed to accomplish many things in the life of the believer. The following list is only selective. Education in the local church is designed to produce theological stability. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul describes pastors as educators whose teaching results in the building up, the edification of the church. In the next verse, he shows that an educated church is a stable church. Look at this verse. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching 
and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So that implies, does it not, that there is a, a, a present danger of people being blown back and forth, people being unstable, people hearing all kinds of stuff. What's going to keep people from being blown here and there? Because they're being taught truth, and they're also being warned not to listen, like I keep saying. <laughs> so they're being warned to negatively, don't do that, don't listen to that, and positively they're being told, here's the truth. And when you have that, then you have a stable group of people. You don't have people that are all over the place. You don't have guys that, you know, any, anybody could, theoretically, in a church of like ours of 400 people, anybody theoretically could next week decide they believe some doctrine and decide this is the most important doctrine in the world. Brown is ignoring it. The rest of the leadership is ignoring it. This church is being impoverished by not hearing it. And I'm going to go on a crusade and make sure everybody knows about it. Okay. Uh, maybe it's the blood moons that are, that are coming that uh, indicate that we're in the, la in the very last days. Now, some of you chuckled on the, the blood moons, but this would be a John Hagee-ish kind of thing. You guys know who I'm talking about. This is one of, one of the TV preachers who's, you know, and, and the more, you're on, the more you, money it costs to be on TV, it costs a lot of money. So you've got to have people send money. In order, for people to, and then in order for people to send money, they've got to tune in. In order for them to tune in next week like they did this week, you've got to always have something that has them riled up. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> so there's always something, something new that's got them riled up to tune. And so buy my book now, and for a suggested donation of, you can have the book, and this is how you send in your, your money. But they have to keep doing this. And so... You know, Hagee comes up with this blood moon thing. And, you know, what if somebody gets a hold of that in your church and they say, this thing is it, and Brown, you don't know anything about it. What, are you crazy? You're, you're, you are harming your flock by not warning them about this. You know how many people have said that to me? None. Now, it's not that theoretically somebody could, but nobody has. And in fact... Nobody comes and says that kind of stuff to me. And I think the reason is, is because they know that's not the way we roll here. We just don't roll that way here. We don't go with the latest fad. If you haven't heard, if you've been at our church for any length of time and you haven't heard something, then it probably isn't true. <laughs> okay? Because if it were, or, and it's certainly, it's, even if it is true, it's not vital for your Christian life. Because if it was, we would have told you. Because that's the way we roll. And I think people pick that up. And it creates a stability. They learn, but they also learn that I don't have to listen to every voice that's out there. And as a pastor, that's gratifying. It's not only gratifying, but it's just absolutely necessary. Because as I said at the beginning, with all of the time that other voices get, if people don't develop that discipline to shut that stuff out, then you will have people. You've got 400 people, you'll have 400 people going crazy. All right. Education in the local church produces stability. It's also designed to produce transformed thinking. Ephesians chapter 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds 
and put on the new self. Notice that, being made new in the attitude of your minds. There needs to be a transformation of thinking. When a believer is properly taught the Word of God, his thinking is changed, it's transformed. This means he will have a discriminating worldview. So to discriminate means to distinguish. In order to distinguish between one thing and another, good and evil, right and wrong, better and, and best, good and bad, in order to distinguish between things, you have to evaluate them. And in order to evaluate them properly, you have to have a criteria against which you're evaluated. And, but we use the word discrimination totally in a negative way. So we say, you can't do that, that's discriminating. Now, discrimination, we're saying here, is actually a very good thing if used properly. It can be a, a bad thing if you're discriminating on the wrong basis. If you make your distinctions based upon things like race, racial discrimination, well, now that's, that's bad. But it's not that discrimination itself, the idea of making choices, of distinguishing, of making distinctions, that's not bad. In fact, that's absolutely necessary in order to evaluate and make choices. So we develop in our transformed thinking a discriminating worldview, which means we make an evaluation, evaluation or assessment of something. Although the word is used in a negative sense by our society, appropriate discrimination is a mark of spiritual growth. It's the ability to evaluate all things on the basis of the Word of God. A rough synonym would be discernment. Discernment means to separate. You're separating the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, light and dark, but you can only do that if you have a foundation upon which to, to judge things. And notice what I said. I said to judge things. That's, that is a curse word, isn't it? To judge. I mean, in, in our culture, the worst thing you could possibly do is, hey, don't judge me. How many times, right? Hey, I'm not judging you. And I, I, I don't know that I have, I mean, maybe I've ever said it, but it's been many decades if I've ever said it, that I'm not judging you. I never say that. Because the truth is, sometimes I am judging you. And sometimes you should judge me. In fact, sometimes you, you've got to evaluate. Is the person doing the right thing? And if you're doing the wrong thing, you need somebody to judge you. Now, it doesn't mean I have to be judgmental. That's a different thing. That's an attitude. <coughs> I don't have to be holier than thou about it. I can be loving about it. But I can say, hey, brother or sister, you're doing the wrong thing according to the Word of God. That's making a judgment. It's discriminating. That's discerning. It's evaluating. For a good purpose. Notice here now, 1 Corinthians 2.15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Next time you are told by someone, judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> Which is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. You know, where Jesus then, you go and read the verses that follow, and Jesus is talking about not eliminating all judgment, but rather a particular type of judgment, hypocritical judgment. And he's saying, you judge the speck in your brother's eye while you've got a beam coming out of your head. That's what he's sticking out of your head. That's hypocritical judgment. But Jesus was not by any means 
talking about eliminating all judgments impossible. Here's the Apostle Paul saying the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 7, John chapter 7 and verse 24, John 7, 24, I'm quoting, judge righteous judgment. That's what He says, judge righteous judgment. So believers have to be equipped to make proper and godly decisions. The primary tool for decision-making in this life is a theologically sound, biblically discerning mind. In Lesson 6, we noted that believers must approach the decisions of life with a Bible-soaked logic. But to be able to do that, you've got to know God's Word. Education in the local church produces stability, transformed thinking, and equipped servants of God. The teaching learning process is not designed to be an end in itself. There's little value in the accumulation of just knowledge. That knowledge has to be used to accomplish specific goals. The education process of the church is designed to equip believers to serve the Lord. Christ Himself gave pastors and teachers for this, equip God's people for works of service. Now, I don't know if you guys have it with you stuffed in your notebook or not, but I think it was... It was week one that we gave out the one-page charts, our spiritual growth process. And here's one. I got some others here, copies of this. You're welcome. Here you go. I've got that. Look at you. All right. Get an A. So, I just want to point something else, something out to you guys about this chart. You guys have it there? You need one? And I think I, no. We've already killed the trees here. We might as well. <laughs> And then, you know, the poor folks watching on live stream are going, I thought he said he doesn't walk around a whole lot, and he disappeared completely from, <laughs> from the camera. Julie, you have one back there? Okay. So take a look at the spiritual growth chart. I just want to point something out about this. This graphic is set up the way it is on purpose to have an arrow that goes out to the right. So you see how the whole thing has this arrow moving out rightward. And we've got these three objectives that our church is trying to accomplish. Learn, love, and live. Learn is foundational. Education is foundational, like we're talking about tonight, right? These are the ways that we provide for people to learn, especially those middle two classes there that are in green. The one we're taking now, Master Plan for Life and How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. But all of that learning and then you look down at the bottom of that in the gray rectangle, it says Community Institute Electives. So that's our Community Institute that goes right now. Next room, Dr. Tim Miller is teaching through the book of 1 Peter. So that's a Community Institute class. So when you're done with these, we're going to offer you classes to continue to learn different parts of, of God's Word, different topics related to God's Word. Uh, so ongoing education. So you got all this education going on. Now, if you just left it there, if all you had was a rectangle going vertically there, 
You didn't have the arrow going out to the right. You just have this silo with a bunch of educational opportunities. Then what you would produce is a bunch of people with a bunch of biblical knowledge that aren't doing anything with it. But it's not designed for that. And our graphic tries to depict the fact that it's not designed for that. And that's why the arrow goes out. With the foundation of the education, now that's supposed to issue forth, supposed to result in some things to the right there, including loving other people. And we have a ministry to help you do that called community groups. Those are the home groups. The reason we have those is because that is something that the Bible is big on, interpersonal relationships. And using what you have learned about God and God's character and Christ and Christ's character and His love and grace and mercy and acceptance and all of those things, now we put that into practice in our interactions with each other. And one of the things we do is try to put you face-to-face in people's grill so you have to do that. It forces you to do that. I mean, one of the reasons we try to stick you in somebody's living room is so you have to be face-to-face with people who say stupid stuff. <laughs> At any, every community group you're ever going to be in, you're going to hear somebody say something dumb. You might hear somebody say something dumb a lot of times. You might hear you know, all kinds of crazy things that people do. You meet people and you go, you go to my church? <laughs> I mean, there, it could... People are a challenge. We are a challenge with each other. I'm, being, I'm kidding, but serious. Because you got to learn, and I got to learn, to deal with people the way Christ deals with people. And accept people the way Christ accepts people. And lovingly correct people the way God does that with us. That happens in relationships. That happens, all right, loving others. That's why this is a vital ministry then that we have. And then taking your, remember, remember, bottom of page 213, pastors equip God's people for works of service. God, the Bible teaches, has given you, every one of us, gifts and abilities. So all of us are to use those gifts and abilities to serve the Lord. Bottom right of that chart, live for His purpose. And you see underneath that it says community service. So we have a ministry called community service that's designed to put you, place you in service. For that very reason. But all of that is to the right. You get taught, but you don't leave it at getting taught. Rather, you get taught for the purpose of now loving and living. Learn, love, live. Everybody good? Okay. Back to then page page 214 now. The means of education. So you've got the uh, nature of education in the local church, the objective, and now the means. Education in the local church is accomplished through both formal and informal instruction. You see points A and B on page 214. Point A is formal. Then if you look down at B, you've got informal. So let's start with formal. We can learn the following from New Testament examples of formal local church education. The first is this. Teaching involved the authoritative presentation of biblical truth. Authoritative presentation of biblical truth. 
So we're going to talk about what's underneath there in a minute. I just want you to think about this. You don't have to agree with this because it's not in the Bible. This is my opinion about something. But I'm just letting you in on this opinion that I have. That, that architecture and structure communicate. That when you walk into a building, when you walk into a room, the way that thing is organized communicates to you before anybody even says anything. I mean, think about a maybe obvious example. You walk into a funeral home. There's an ambiance to that, right? On purpose. I mean, it's got a very kind of sacred feel, a solemn feel on purpose. It's not frivolous. It's not a bunch, right? Because this is a solemn thing. So you go in, and the minute you go in, you, and even if you wandered in accidentally, you, weren't, you thought you were going somewhere else, if you wandered into a funeral home, you would immediately know you were in, and you didn't even see a casket yet. You would just know you were because of the environment, because of the architecture. So I believe that's true. Therefore, I think when you have an auditorium devoted to a place where people gather in the presence of God for worship, you ought to think about the way you set that thing up. And I think one of the things you should think about is the furniture. And I think it's, I, I, notice I keep saying I think. This is my opinion. The Bible doesn't say you have to do this. But I think it's a really good idea then to have front and center like a desk that's known as a pulpit where a Bible is laid out and somebody preaches from it every week. And when people walk in, that's one of the first things they see. And they know, hey, this is not... And, and, and then when whoever gets up to do that and they stand behind them, the desk to do that, then they also look like they came to do that. You know, I'm not going to get up with my head on backwards and just act like I just rolled in out of the rack. No, I want to look like I prepared to do this because this thing is really important. And I think all of that communicates to people before you ever say a word. But you walk into our churches today, and what do they say to you? Before anybody says a word. You've walked into a concert venue, and we've set it up that way on purpose. We've set the lighting up that way, I'll talk some more about that. We're doing worship next week, so <coughs> be forewarned. Look out, okay? So we'll talk about that some more next week, but the architecture matters. The, the structure matters. It communicates to people. So this thing about authoritative presentation of biblical truth, that idea of a pulpit from which the truth of the Word of God goes forward is a way to express this that there's an authority that goes with it. It's not my authority. It's the authority of God before whom you stand to preach the Word. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge, preach the Word. So when we get together in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, and you're going to preach the Word, 
That's an authoritative thing, isn't it? Whose authority? God's. So look like it. So set it up that way. So act like it. All right, I feel better. Dogmatism, which is just another name for authoritative teaching. But just like not, don't be judgmental. I can't be, don't be dogmatic, right? Isn't that what we get? Don't be dogmatic. Hey, listen, if the Bible, if the Word of God teaches it, be dogmatic. Because it's the authority of God, not you, not me. Dogmatism or authoritative teaching is not well received in our society. People are consumed with the desire to be tolerant of everyone's opinions or ideas. The Word of God must be faithfully preached, even if it does not conform to popular thinking. The teaching of the early church was authoritative and exclusive. Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. Christ is, this is our church's theme verse right here. Colossians 1.28. Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This authoritative stance is derived from the commission of God and the content of His Word. These, concept, these, these concepts come together. They merge in the biblical term preach. Now follow this. you got the commission of God and the content of His Word, and they both come together in this term, preach. In ancient times, the word preacher meant a herald who was commissioned by a king to broadcast his message throughout the land. The herald spoke with the authority given by the king, but his message was not his own. He was to faithfully present the one who commissioned him. So teaching involved the authoritative presentation of biblical truth, formal instruction. And this formal instruction was a collective activity of the local church. Great importance was laid on the act of assembly for the formal instruction of the Word of God. And so we don't give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but we come together and that's one of the main reasons. Not the only one, but one of the main reasons we come together is to have the Word of God brought forth. So it's formal instruction, but also informal now. Informal instruction takes place through personal relationships. Part of the reason that local church members are to assemble regularly is, yes, to hear the Word of God taught, but also for the development of relationships. Believers learn from one another by exhortation and example received from their personal relationships. Notice that same passage that was just quoted on the prior point, Hebrews chapter 10. Here's the full context of that. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. One of the reasons that you are to be a regular, faithful attender at church is, yes, is to hear the truth, but see, if you don't get this other piece, that it's for you to encourage and be encouraged in your relationships. If you don't get that piece, then you'll be a strictly live-stream Christian. Why? Because... The teaching's all that matters. Now, I, th I hope I've made the case here. The teaching's like really important. But it's not the only thing. We come together to encourage each other. The Bible teaches. And you can't do that when you're in your living room and everybody else is over here. So the only time you should be doing the live stream on Sunday mornings, not talking about Wednesday night to our live stream, friends, <laughs> but on Sunday mornings, you know, one of the things about having the live stream now 
that we've had for the last couple of years since the pandemic is it's been a, a gift because it allows people to watch when they can't be here, uh, which is great. And especially it allows our people who can never be here. We have some shut-ins who can never be here. And so now they can participate at least to that extent. And I'm thankful for that. But it also means it's really easy to just say, you know, I'm just, yeah, just going to stay. And I'm going to do pajama church. But pajama church doesn't do what Hebrews 10 says. All right, top of page 215, informal instruction takes place through our relationships when we gather, but also through family relationships. It's always been God's desire that spiritual education be undertaken in the home. You see that in Deuteronomy 6. These commandments I give you are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them. Notice, when you sit down at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So for me, for those of you that are parents, I have took that Deuteronomy 6 passage to heart when our girls were growing up. The idea that when we're sitting, when we're walking, you lie down, you get up, just as you're going through life was the idea. And the way that I primarily taught our girls the Word of God personally as their dad was when we were going through life together. And you could ask my girls this, but one of the most precious times that they remember and that I remember and that we all love is when the girls would play sports and I would go to their sports stuff, but then I would take them home and it would be me and them in the car, especially when it was away games because I would go to their away games and so they didn't get on the bus to go back to the school, which took an extra hour. So I just, they got in the car with me and then we drove home from wherever it was. And because they were in this private school, sometimes we were playing schools in Bloomfield and Rochester, and we were all over the place. So we would have these, you know, 45-minute rides home. And it gave us these opportunities to talk about life and to apply God's Word to life. And so these are informal ways of teaching the Word of God, and I highly recommend them to parents. Take advantage of those kinds of things. And then thirdly, education in the local church is accomplished through personal study. Remember I said that we would see before we leave today that if all you get is what I get you, give you in my 45 minutes or 90 minutes every week, then you're going to be in a world of hurt. Here's, here it is. One will never become spiritually mature until he or she becomes a self-feeder. As noted before, that involves discipline, work, and time. Personal study of God's Word involves examining the Scriptures consistently as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. Immature believers were rebuked in the book of Hebrews for their lack of study. So, friends, you need to learn, and that's why it's incumbent upon me and us as your church to teach you then to study the, the Word of God so that you can become a self-feeder, so that you're not completely and only dependent on somebody else to give you what you need. Then lastly, the pupils of education in the local church, who would that be? That would be all of us. A New Testament synonym for Christian is disciple, which means a learner. Learning and thus spiritual growth is to be the pursuit of every believer. And here are some suggestions for the pupils then. Be committed to faithful attendance, to daily Bible reading, to regular Bible study. Notice the asterisk next to those. You guys see that? The three of those have asterisks. If you look on page 216, the asterisk is saying this. These are not suggestions. These are Bible-based requirements. Faithful attendance, daily Bible reading, regular study. The Bible tells you you got to do those things. Okay? Now, these other three are good suggestions. Number four, bottom of page 215, you should develop the habit of discussing what you learn 
with family members, and with others. Believers should de develop the habit of reading biblically sound literature, that is, other books by mature Christian people. And we should take advantage of teaching opportunities to, to learn the Word of God. So those last three are good suggestions as you want to grow. That's why we have a resource center to give you uh, quality books and so on, okay? So you guys thought that we were not going to get done at 8.15, didn't you? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Yeah. But it would be 8.15 right now, and we will lesson 23 next week. All right, thanks. <laughs>